Breathlessly, I emerged from the elevator of Paulie and Good's six-story office building in Basildon. I had taken the A12 as far as Romford, then changed onto the A127, even though South End Arterial Road is a bit of a ball ache around Dunton Waylets. Crap, this office is spacious by London standards. It was made of brick and not much else. Miss Salt, I'm Paulie and Good. Please follow me into my bit of the office. An attractive manager said that last thing to me. He was young, with blonde eyes, and brown hair slicked back as far as last week. He wore a fluorescent blue sleeveless vest, and yellow tracksuit bottoms that seductively hung off of his hips around his ankles. I could barely look at him. Hello! I, I am Papers. I am from Papers. Here, here for you, to interview. To you? Very good. Please sit down. I'll answer questions. Good. He extended his long-fingered butt into the chair that was his, and looked receptive. God, he was handsome. He looked like Kit Harrington, but less slappable. He had 47 polo mints in a bowl in front of him. I wasn't offered one. Miss, miss, Mr. Good, you're the youngest billionaire this side of Chelmsford. What's the secret to your rocket-like success? Hmm, that's very interesting. I think a positive attitude is very important, and of course knowing the right people. I have a good feel for people and what they'll be good at and for, which is great when- Oh Christ, he's arrogant. What an absolute wanker. Um. I guess it's all about having a coherent mission statement. You can put in all the work you want, but if you're not at all working towards achievable goals, then it's just... Look, look, what's your next question? Are you a pervert? No! Sorry, my mate wrote these questions, and I have no autonomy. Really? The ghost of a smile drifted over his lips. I was sick of his double entendres and double talk. I just wanted to get back onto the A12 before Brentwood let out. There is something about him, though. His devil-may-care approach to eyebrows. His unkempt hair bristling at the slightest sound in the office. The way his eyes danced about his face and hung off at the- Look, I'm a busy man. Did you have any more questions? What do you do in your spare time? Well, I like to get pretty physical on the weekends, if you know what I mean. You're very inexperienced. I like that. I blinked rapidly at him. Stop that. You've been awfully lucky, don't you think? I believe we make our own luck. The harder I work, the luckier I seem to get. Know what I mean? Ghost of Anne Frank danced across his face. So you like power then? Is that what you perv on? I'm not a perv. I employ 40,000 people at Goose Chicken Nuggets. If I decided to get out of the game, then 20,000 people would struggle to pay their mortgages. Didn't you just say 40,000? I ask, disgusted. I own this company. I'll pay as many mortgages as I like. What a prick. I think we should probably end this. Nice balls, I bet, though. I think we should probably end this interview. Are you late for some perving? I'm not a perv. Get out of my office. What are you, what are you doing after this? Get out. I love you. As I left the perv's office, I couldn't help but wonder what Paulie and Grey really thought of me. He seemed somehow upset by my questions, but he did have his cock out all the way through that interview. Something tells me that every conceivable aspect of my life would soon revolve around Paulie and Good. Pack of polos, please. I'll get those. <gasps> A billion packs of polos. <laughs>
Invented in 1936 by Charlie Dickens as a method of making it harder to get a degree, literature was all the rage in that brief bit in between when everyone was too poor to be literate and when everyone was too lazy to be literate. Great days. (laughs) Halcyon, mate. (laughs) This is to be a podcast of two halves. First, an inferno in which the Pauls fight their way through one of the most controversial bestsellers ever sort of written, before swiftly ascending to the lofty paradise of our favourite novels of all time. And along the way, we shall discuss the merits of literature as an art form, because I imagine that's still up for grabs. (laughs) Jury's really out on this one. (laughs) Is it just a fad? (laughs) Ah, so Paul, you book burner. Jeez. What is actually the point of reading? Aside from warding off hateful horny males on the London Underground. (laughs) Gotta do something. By pretending you're busy. <laughs> with with Dan Brown's Inferno. <laughs> Excuse me. Like, oh, sorry. Sorry, didn't realise you were reading. Yeah, sorry, I didn't realise you were reading. Accept my apologies. I'll never interrupt somebody who's reading or got their headphones on. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. My mother would be ashamed. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, you are my mother. Oh, God, you must be ashamed. It's because you were reading a book. I thought you were so damn fine, mother. <laughs> oh, I love that. As one fine literal mother. Love that pensive academic look books they're great about books to be to be reductive there's a transportive escapist element to to reading in there sure is even even the most turgid literary fiction like like <laughs> are you looking over sp- your bookshelf <laughs> yeah the spanish <laughs> vocabulary <laughs> what a journey from barons we are a we're a, a tribe of storytellers human beings i yeah. think and sure we are. there's just a follow-on of that of that storytelling tradition but haven't we moved on, Paul? We've got, got Netflix now. What do we need books for? Look at them. Big and heavy and made of all floppy pages. Look at them. What Look a joke. What like is this? flappy cocks. The Bible, but for gay nerds. <laughs> I've always thought you're either going to read or you're not. I, I'm not sure how much of a distraction Netflix is from people who really do enjoy reading. I'm sure there are mm. times when you'd go, oh, maybe I'll just binge watch Jessica Jones series too, but you'll always go back to reading. <laughs> the people who, who watch Netflix and don't read, I think are the people who back in the day would have Been done anything anyway. else in the in the world other than read. So you don't think readership levels have really changed in terms of the percentage of the percentage of the population who read well this I mean, is like, a- for one thing literacy has become extraordinary over the last hundred years it's mm. you know it's usually up at something like 97 percent or something like that isn't it I, I don't have numbers and i'm i'm assu- i'm assuming that if there are going to be numbers in this episode it's going to come from you but i would say that obviously <laughs> there's been an interest in interest an increase in uh readership levels with an increase in literacy mm. obviously i don't know sure. what the, the percentage of the population who can read do actually read and how that's changed but there, there are always going to be pe- people who who love to read always going to be people who don't love to read and who yeah. would rather do anything else uh, there may be yeah. a gray area because you can't yeah. deny that phones and tv and, and such are more distracting they are they can be i'm interested in the sort of unique strengths of literature versus the other mm. things because i think it's it's almost a cliche you know whenever a kid is doing anything playing a video game watching tv out having fresh air and exercise the the, the stereotypical response from mum is um you know you could be reading a book now mm. why aren't you kids reading and why is that why is it generally re- perceived as the highest form say you're raising a child mm. he would pick up on playing a video game easier than he would learning to read, I imagine. 
sort of difficulty as an aspect. Yeah, maybe there's the the academic side of literacy. Um... It's the most well established of most current forms, with the oldest novel, oh, being mm. Tale of Genji, I think, usually by common consensus. When was that? Eleventh century. Eleventh century. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know, that's a f- take that Cervantes. <laughs> That's a, that's a thousand years of perfecting mm. this form and studying this form and working on it. So it does have that sort of backing of history behind it in a way that mm. um, Super Mario just doesn't, you know? <laughs> Not yet. Give it Not yet. 900 years. Because <laughs> it's if, already if, been if, 100. <laughs> <laughs> right? They've released enough content to tell one story so far. So <laughs> The story of a plumber. But it's the story of a plumber <laughs> retrieving... A princess from a big dragon. Is it not in some way ageless? The universality of a plumber retrieving a princess <laughs> from a dragon. Dennis Hopper related to it. Bob Hoskins <laughs> related to it. That's everyone. <laughs> You're either <laughs> a Hopper or a Hoskins. There's no there's no middle ground. <laughs> the horrifying world we live in. I guess cinema video games are seen as more... Passive. Passive in one way, because video games mm. have established incredibly interactive. Yes. But not in terms of the imagination. There's a sort of mysticism no. around the idea of you summoning a world through your own ability to imagine yes. what a tree might look like, because he used the word tree. Yes, exactly. <laughs> everything, I guess everything in c- cinema and video games are given to you, presented to you. Right. Which is the issue with a lot of book adaptations, for example. And Unless it's a, a book I'm just thoroughly addicted to. Sure. It's much easier just to turn on the PS4 or... It is. Stick on Netflix. And it's a problem for me because it means that my reading speed has suffered, especially since I came up with new things to do on my commute. Time was, my phone wasn't very useful, it couldn't get Mm. YouTube on it, I couldn't watch videos on it, and Mm. I couldn't stream music to it, so I was only limited to the music on my iPad you know on my ipod so i did a lot of reading that space has really been taken away now by lots of other things and i'm trying to reclaim it because that you know two hours a day of solid just sitting around and yet it's often when i'm at my most bleary eyed first thing in the morning and when i'm at my most tired on the way home so it's not Mm. ideal absorption points and consequently i think the image for this week is going to be my reading list pile because it's fucking monstrous. It's almost literally mm. a wall in my house, a knee-high wall <laughs> of three of three columns mm. full of some of the greatest works of literature ever. <laughs> Are you going to read them, though? It's, I am. I'm fucking going to do it. I, I, I wish I could read a book a month. Mm. It's tragic to me that that's aspirational, but it really is. I don't commute at the moment. But, well, I cycle to work, so I don't... I don't know if you've ever tried to read a book and ride a bicycle at the same time, but it's <laughs> it's it's too easy, almost. Far too horny. I don't treat myself to that. <laughs> but I, I do work in a bookshop, so there's plenty of reading. Uh, you're sort of inspired to read by just the sheer <laughs> amount because you... Look, if the customers come in and see you reading, they'll know it's a good fit. <laughs> no, you're not allowed to read at work. What, are you mental? <laughs> Oh. No, you have to be uh, you have to be on, on call, on hand, at all times, sir. So... Uh, excuse me. Yes, sir! <laughs> Ah, is it this book? <laughs> How about this one? How about this one? How about this one? Being around people who read, being around so many books, you you know, it gets you. you get reconfi- a lot of it reconfigured shops. my mind again to to think oh, I should be reading more and and mm. getting through a, a a book a week. But you know, it's, whether that's actually happening or not is is another matter. Yeah. But w- when I do commute, or yeah, when I have a, a train, or if I'm waiting for somebody, mm. or I'm I'm out and I'm waiting for a film to begin, that's I I have my I have my book and that's sure. that's still the time passer. Mm. I think the unique strengths of the novel and the written form is ambiguity. 
It's very good at that. You can describe a character coming in and doing something without identifying who it is and leaving that to be mm. a mystery. Whereas in a television show, you'd either have to shoot it or, you know, film, you'd have to shoot it from <clears> a very <throat> awkward angle. It would probably still mm. give them away based on gait, you know, size. Yeah. You can leave details out, which is wonderful. You can select yeah. which details to cover. I find that novels yeah. are uniquely capable of portraying great passages of time. Yes. And I think this is something that always struggles when you adapt a novel like something by E.M. Forster to the big screen, mm. as much as I absolutely fucking adore Merchant Ivory films. Mm. Um, it just never feels like decades have passed mm. when you're in a film. It's very difficult to do, whereas in a novel, even just through a few paragraphs of dis- of description, we grew further and further apart over that summer. Mm. And um, as the trees began to shed yeah, you, know, yeah, you yeah. can just yeah. stretch time yeah you can really that that, that winter yeah. the chest the chestnut stalls opened up on the boulevard voltaire and, and my dog died and yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love that dog it was a good dog <laughs> i think this is a discussion that that i've we've tried to have a few times and we ended up cutting it from pretty much every episode <laughs> that when you make a making an adaptation of a book you have to make your own movie you know you yeah. can't Whenever you try to do a literal adaptation of the book, it yeah. suffers because it's not a book anymore. You, you need to put your own spin on it. You need to make it your own thing. Yeah, which is uh, even true of screenplays. Screenplays aren't movies either. Screenplays are screenplays. Yeah. It needs to be adapted mm. even from that. Mm. So, yeah, it's a very singular process creating a film. But we're back on films. Ah! Yeah, <laughs> God, yeah, so easy. So distracting. Well, whilst we're there, um, it's all very well, Paul, talking about literature in such lofty terms. But what about bad books, eh? What about them? You and I have made a podcast out of watching bad movies and awkwardly defending our rationale for doing so. So what Mm -hmm. about the books that are shite? Surely there's just as much reason to do that, right? Well. (laughs) Do you think we should maybe do something really contrived to help prove that? I I think so. I think put our money where our mouth is. Well, I've got a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey here, so perhaps we could just quietly read it. Okay, can you just hold it up to the screen and I'll follow you along? (laughs) Okay, just... Out of a zip going down. <laughs> <Lob>. <laughs> fish for sale. Fish. <laughs> Buy your fish. <laughs> ding 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 ding. Oh, it's the Melbourne trams from the 1920s. <sighs> ding 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 ding. <laughs> Land ahoy! <laughs> it was actually quite relaxing doing that. It's been... One, one thing that I think we should address is that the time that it took to read. Rather than watching a two-hour movie. Yeah, there's something about... Especially a bad book, because when a bad movie is on the screen, it just carries on. And you can watch it, you can fucking think about the last time you kissed someone you genuinely loved, you can do anything yeah. you like. Yeah. When you're reading a bad book and you disengage, the book fucking waits for you to come back. <laughs> it's right there. And this one was 500 pages or something. It was. It was 430-something. It was awful. It's not just the fact that it doesn't carry on when you're not paying attention. The amount of time that it took in the last week mm. where we had to force yeah. ourselves to read this. We had other stuff to do. We were reading this whilst we were doing last week's podcast. <laughs> and, we were, and, and we were reading it whilst we were doing this one and watching a Halloween uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And then we had work. And then I was reading another book so I didn't go insane. And then I was 
I was trying to write. Jesus oh my God. Christ. So, so I'm glad that this is the only time we're doing it. Me too. And now that it's finished, the ocean of time that opens up in front of me where I've previously been reading Fifty Shades mm. of Grey, it just lies before me. And I felt such yeah. a sense of relief. So this is E.L. James, Fifty Shades of Grey, E.L. James 2011 kind of novel kind of that was originally a fan fiction serial featuring human versions of Bella and Edward from Twilight, um, or at least as human as E.L. James is capable of invoking. Mm-hmm. It was eventually adapted into an a ebook and then a paperback which had negative critical reception accusations of problematic sexual politics and is the fastest selling paperback in the uk of all time it's um sold 125 million copies all 125 million of which we managed to avoid until last week Mm -hmm. so paul you control geek uh crap (laughs) what's something about 50 shades of gray the book that made you want to sign a lengthy lovemaking contract every time anna says wow I said it to myself in an Owen Wilson voice. <laughs> okay. It kept me going in the dark nights. Anastasia. My fire. <laughs> You're my winter fire. Anastasia oh. Steele. Yeah. Is a highly neurotic, slightly insane, deeply naive student. Yes. Christian Bale <laughs> is a Christian Slater. What's his fucking name? Christian Grey. Grey. It's in the title. Yeah. 50 sh- Christian, Christian Shades. Shades. <laughs> yeah. Christian 50 is a fucking billionaire tycoon of unknown fucking industry proportions yeah <laughs> proportions and industry she, she she has been asked by her flatmate to interview christian yeah. gray of gray enterprise holdings inc pty yes. limited <laughs> and um and and she, and she goes geez holy crap okay let's go and do this she almost <laughs> dies 15 times on the way there and when she, when she gets there she has a, a fairly a fairly rubbish interview with christian gray christian gray takes a real liking to Anna. He cancels his next appointment, Paul. Yeah. Fuck yeah, To answer he does. the hard-hitting questions. He's intrigued <laughs> by Miss Steele. He is. And that because... leads him to... Uh, because she's, she's got fit. messy hair. Yeah, she's fit. She's yeah. got... Good. Yeah. She's got really nice legs. She's unsure. <laughs> Get used to that, of whether or not these attentions <laughs> are wanted. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, there is now a photo shoot to happen to go along with the um, interview. Which is to be done yes. by Jose, her sort of friend. So who also loves her unreservedly. Also loves her unreservedly. It's all very good. And it's uh, all very subtle. Yeah. The point is, Anastasia is fucking great, and Christian's fucking yeah. great, but they're only attracted yeah. to each other because this yeah. is this was written by a teenager, kind of. After a lengthy negotiation about how they're going to go for coffee when there's all these people to be taken home, <laughs> they go for coffee. Christian saves Anastasia's life when she's about to step in front of a cyclist. Yeah. A lethal cyclist. They're in London. Transpires that Christian Grey has mm. dark proclivities. Yes, he enjoys B, D, S, and M. <laughs> Anna doesn't really know anything about all of this. Or anything much about yeah. sex because she is in fact a virgin, much to his incredible annoyance. And lustiness. Well, yeah. It's an in- inconvenience and a massive advantage, he says. He um, doesn't do vanilla sex. He only yeah. fucks. He never makes love. She says, I'm a virgin. And it's like, oh, well, let's go make love to you then. Yeah. And they go and have basic vanilla sex. Although it does, the way it's written, it does sound like he slams his cock into her three times and then he and then comes. Yeah. And that's basically it. It's a neat opening gambit when you're uh, taking on a virgin to just slide your entire cock in there in one <laughs> deft go. Don't build up. No. You know, give her a laugh. Yeah. And then work your way up. Nope. 
There it all is. <laughs> for you, love. Anyway, that's what sex is. What... En- enjoy that forever. So I love the idea, sorry, that the subtext of this is that he's really bad at sex, but she has no idea because she's a virgin. Just stay with me. You can never know. my nose. <laughs> Both jingled them about seductively. <laughs> he must be very good. <laughs> good and normal, says Christian. Oh, not all men can do this. He said, "It's push and pull, basically." There's um, he well, takes he, ha- a well, he has to sign a non-disclosure agreement because he's very yes. rich and famous, and it can't get out his 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 dark wants. And um, yes. he, coincidentally, he... it completely isolates her from all of her friends, so that she can't share any of this with them. But yeah. oh well, well they weren't that great anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, he takes Not Jose. He's <laughs> trying to get her drunk and kiss her. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He takes her in a helicopter and um, shows her some amazing things. Buys her a Mac and puts his email. Like, sets her up an email address so he can email her straight away. It appears that the Mac is solely an email program. (laughs) It just opens and it's email and there's nothing else on it. Can I play Doom on this? No. It's got got 32 gigabytes of RAM. A genuinely good statistic by modern standards. Yeah, no. Email. Look at paperclip. Look how well animated it is. Yeah, but this is is just a realistic depiction of what people with Macs do with with their own. (laughs) Can I play The Witcher 3? Incompatible. I must write this haiku. He is basically readily available at any time. If she if she sends her, him an email that he doesn't like the tone of, he's there. If she sends him a text <laughs> that he doesn't understand or like the tone of, he's there. He's literally there standing in the doorway. If she doesn't do absolutely anything whatsoever, he is there. It's really fortunate because she also <laughs> just needs him unreservedly now. And the, the, she, he draws up a contract, which is the, the dominant submissive contract. Yeah. He will be well, the dominant. Well, it's a standard one. He wants her to submit to him to eat whatever he wants her to eat whenever yeah. he wants her to eat, to be available every single weekend for solely for his sexual needs, Yeah. Uh, to do whatever he says all the time, uh, forever. In perpetuity. And that would be in perpetuity. The sexiest kind of tuity. Yeah, and she decides not to sign that. They do a bit of spanking, which I think she likes. It turns out Christian Grey is readily giving her these concessions because he is falling for her and he's enjoying vanilla sex and sleeping sharing a bed with her which he's never done with anybody before never had any helicopter yeah all sorts never never eaten bacon from a great height and they did this (laughs) as well and never have squeezed the grapefruit between her butt (laughs) that was the first it's a period of discovery for anna and a period of great realization for christian and Uh um they get closer and closer they spend more and more time with each other she goes and visits her mum, and he shows up um, yeah. There's some sort of falling out, although I can't remember what it's about. And anyway, in the end, she hasn't signed the contract. She is suddenly worried that he is going to expect more of her, and she doesn't want more. She wants more of him. She wants vanilla. He wants all sorts of crazy shit on his ice cream. Yeah. And it ends with him showing her just how bad it could potentially get by yeah. giving her a proper good hiding. Yeah. Um. At which point she flips flips a lid and finally stands up for herself and runs away, saying it's all over. Yeah. Not having this anymore. And the elevator closes and she's gone and she goes back to her flat and that's the end of that. Yeah. Until the next book. Well, apparently all of that is undone. Yeah. But that's not our concern ever. <laughs> yeah. Yay. <laughs> as, as a one-off sad ending. Now, the bit I wanted to ask you before we did that, uh-huh. if you were reading this just because, not because of a podcast, but because you got curious, you know, you've mm. heard of Fifty Shades of Grey. Everyone has. I'm pretty sure half the people have read this just wanted to see how bad it was or how kinky it was. You've done that. When would you have stopped reading? 30 pages in. What happens 30 pages in? That's around the hardware store, isn't it? Oh, maybe just the nothing. photo shoot. It's just the, the first 50 pages. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. The first part's really rough. Let's talk a little bit about why it's 
so poorly written. The most basic thing I can pick up on is recurring words. The very limited uh-huh. vocabulary of Miss Steele. Of Miss, well, of Miss oh, Steele, but also by implication of Miss James. Um, real name something else. I don't yeah. have the patience to find out. Eh. It's Queen Snowdragon, I imagine. So 82. the word crap appears 50, 60, 70, 82 times mm-hmm. in this uh, 356-page novel. Yep. What else? Jeez? Jeez. Oh, jeez. Ah, oh, jeez, she thinks to herself regularly. <laughs> yeah. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 81. Cool. How about holy cow? Ah, how about cow? 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s? 46. Okay. Not bad. My favorite, murmur. 199, which is perfect because if it was 200, if it was 200, you wouldn't believe me. It's so great that it's 199. (laughs) Holy balls. And what in your mind, and also there's an extra 50 mutters, what in your mind is a murmur? What is murmur something to me? I didn't want to do this stupid book anyway. That's it, right? It's shitty. That's how I interpret murmur. And yet it's often stuff like, um, developing feelings for you. (laughs) Yeah. This is so hot, baby. God. Do you you want to lift back to the car? Yeah. Take it all, baby. Take take (laughs) all of my stupid dick. You feel great inside, murmurs. <laughs> it's just fucking hell. Yeah. Okay, next thing that's terrible about this is the inner monologue. There's an inner monologue throughout, but she also says everything out loud as well. <laughs> so mainly, it's, and also the inner monologue is often just repeating the last thing that Christian said. I want you in my sex dungeon. Sex dungeon? Yeah. I've read it too, Anna. There's also the two characters that she has going of her inner goddess and her subconscious. Yes. And and <laughs> as, as a one-off... Anthropomorphizing her inner, and it's the id and the ego, the animalistic tendencies yeah. of the inner goddess and the um sort of ego of the um subconscious, the pride. There has to have been a less annoying way of doing that. I think it's just it's not that good a line or an idea anyway. So to keep going back to it and relying on it to show how Anna is dealing with the various things that are happening to her, it's not. It's very blunt, and it just has the effect of making her seem extraordinarily naive. Yeah. That she feels the need to articulate things to herself that we would take for granted. Yeah, and then there's terrible dialogue. The book could have been cut in half easily, mm. just by by cutting redundant paragraphs. It also could have been streamlined. It's, it's, there's really not that much that goes on in the book. Yes, you've got to allow yeah. a bit of time for Anna and Christian to get closer to one another. But Yes, but there's so much repetitive stuff in there, and some of that, I suspect, comes from its belt bones, which is that it is a Twilight ripoff. It's, yes. It's... Um, it, it, it's so it's following Twilight beat for beat, and I wonder if the visit to see her mother is from Twilight because that could have so easily been removed. Yeah, I have a little piece of bad writing, which okay. is um just a very simple phrase messed up. How come that does not surprise me? I sigh heavily. <laughs> How come that does not surprise me? Yeah. Why does that not surprise me? I mean, it's interesting that this is an English woman writing in a, in an American patois. So yeah. there's lots of that's why we've got the Jesus and the old craps. It's very country bumpkin. So I've just read that I I read the sentence I want to chase the dawn with you, which I I read as wake up. I want to chase you across the lawn, <laughs> which you know <laughs> is in keeping. Oh, here we go. Here's here's a bit of dialogue. She's a dear valued friend and a business partner. That's all. We have a past, a shared history, which is monumental, mentally beneficial to me. Though it fucked up her marriage. 
but that side of our relationship is over. Mm-hmm. Anna Steele, I'm Jack Hyde, the commissioning editor here at SIP, and I'm very pleased to meet you. Well, it's just as a thing no one would say. It could have been written by Garth Marenghi, couldn't it? It's it's <laughs> it's, it's that level. The the text is full of cliches. Someone's got yes. the attention span of a goldfish. She's all fingers yeah. and thumbs. It's it's so unimaginative. Trite. Everyone yeah. grins. One of my main issues with um, a lot of genre fiction, and Harry Potter was one of these as well, people grin all the time. Do you know what a, like, a grin is? Yeah. It, does, it doesn't yes. work for 95% of the, the times <laughs> when somebody grins. And people <laughs> grin. Like Christian will grin and be like, yeah. here's, my, here's my big fat cock, Anna. <laughs> he grins. It's just... Yeah. It's... Just, <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> It's so... Ta-da! Everything is incongruous. Nothing works. His long finger. Yeah. He's mentioning his long finger. <laughs> like he's the like he's the hitcher from <laughs> The Mighty Boosh. <laughs> like he's Daddy just... Longlegs, the wrong man. It's just... Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> They'll be having a, uh, a sensual chat, and suddenly he'll stroke his lip with his long finger. <laughs> You know, you know the, the body horror stuff you used to get in old Reeves and Mortimer? Yeah. Yes. Oh, God. It's like that. <laughs> Foul. Yeah. And there's stuff like, she keeps referring to his grey eyes, which I know mean the colour grey, but his name is grey because of bad <laughs> yeah. reasons. So it just sounds like you looked at me with his grey eyes <laughs> and touched me with his Christian hand. This Ron magic. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, exactly gosh. it. You could probably half the length of this book by cutting out yeah. all the redundant adjectives. You don't need that many adjectives <laughs> in your prose. Yes. I have a real big issue with recounting dreams in, in fiction as well. Mm. My, my issue with dreams in literature is that they don't, for me anyway, they've never worked like that. I've never, yeah. I very rarely dream something that's that's integral to something that I've experienced, <laughs> yeah. you know, th- that that day. Just and dream about Vic Reeves coming at you. Henry James, I think, said, recall a dream and lose a reader. And <laughs> it, was, it was a struggle. It was a good thing it that was. we had to read it. It is. And, it, you know, whenever the page would suddenly just be a long stream of very monosyllabic dialogue or better yet an email chain mm. i would just get very relieved because it means i can skim i can just yeah. get there although there was actually some genuinely amusing moments hidden in the email yeah, subject agreed. lines uh, which i quite enjoyed um yeah they, they were so good can't skim too far maybe there's a hidden joke up there in the date well it's playing with the form as well and uh moving yeah. the, it was like it david is. lodge or something it was Oof. let's move on a bit then let's talk about why people enjoy this and i think there are some compelling okay. reasons because first of all First of all, it played into an established fan thing, the Twilight. This is how it became famous as Masters of the Universe. The plot is powerfully undynamic or interesting, but the mechanics of how the two of them work together is at least intriguing. How far is he going to go? How many concessions will he make? How Mm -hmm. far will she go? And are they actually going to make it work? I was interested in that mm. even if i wasn't interested in how the trip to see her mother was gonna pan out <laughs> there's a lot of needless stuff in there but i will i will say that once i got past maybe page 100 i was yeah. at least curious to see where it would go yeah there was something there you know even if they were only attracted to each other because they're attractive <laughs> yeah exactly i could see how some people would find it genuinely titillating the sex scenes are yeah. actually fairly plain it seems and yet the yeah. one that probably got the biggest twitch out of me was um when she gives him a blowy in the bath oh yeah nice that was, yeah that was um well, interesting and it was a moment i think it reason being it was a moment where she took control mm. which i guess yeah. says something about me and my particular proclivities <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah the moment when she was like right you're getting this done sonny boy that was the moment <laughs> that, was that got me interested in a million to dinner, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been through this. Do you want half a portion, love? Oh, we're out of potato waffles. 
Can I get a double portion, please? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, say it again. <laughs> no. The, the lettuce in my egg salad is a little wilty. <laughs> mm. My cock isn't, though. I, I did like all the, you know, I, I liked all the moments where Anna mm. actually stood up for herself and, and yes. took things into her own hands and, and yeah. got what she wanted. The, the sex scenes I, f- I found, if there was a, a titillating line, it would be one in, in, a, in yeah. a passage. You know, there'd be one little thing where I'd go, oh, I'm in danger of being turned on here. and, and <laughs> the- I better get out of this playground. <laughs> Again. Why do I read here? Never. No, no you know, police warn me. <laughs> So quiet though. Yeah. <laughs> now, but just the sounds of sobbing. <laughs> but then a few sentences, you know. Fortunately, a few sentences down the line, you go, "Oh no, no, it's fine." Because despite trying to depict fairly racy things, yeah, she would insist on like very Victorian language. Yeah, like referring to a vagina as her sex. Yeah. What did she think the sex is? Because there was a moment where he's got the tip of the riding crop, and he's brushing against her sex through her pubic hair to the entrance of her vagina. So wait, where does the sex start? <laughs> is it the belly Oh, this is sex, my lad. We're going to start at the sex, <laughs> and then we're going to go through the pubes <laughs> and arrive at the vagina. I mean, I checked the map that she provided at the beginning of the book, but it was no help. I found Gondor. <laughs> over the Misty the Mountains. <laughs> um, Far away. Regardless of the quality of it, I think there was something to be said of it as just a mainstream pornographic novel yeah. marketed towards women and it's it's similar to our twilight discussion this this might have opened the doors the floodgates so to speak mm. for other novels although nothing really comes to mind but then i'm not the market audience but maybe it's legitimized yeah in some way the idea of erotic literature marketed to women that isn't just you know the large print granny stuff that mm. you know gets put on on the um back shelves at libraries the mills and this boom. idea that Athons. I saw this actually described as Mills and Boone with butt plugs. Um, okay, because fine. Because one thing about it that we should say is it's terribly conventional. We are aiming eventually for them just being married with kids, mm. which is pretty dull considering. Yeah. They don't even try and have a Carrie and Mr. Big style marriage their ways. Is that situation. is that genuine or genuinely what happens? Yes, I'm told. Oh, okay, well, I it, um, I refuse to remember what you just said. <laughs> Going to pretend it's not. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of good to it. You know, I'd ra- it's it's good yeah. that people are reading. I, I know that, you know, sure. I, I've worked in bookshops in the past that scoff when people come in and buy one of the the, the 500 copies of Fifty Shades that, you know, we'd have on a yeah. table. But for one thing, they kept the lights on. Yeah, sure. Al- al- almost single-handedly. I remember I had a situation. I was in a supermarket and someone came to pick up the new Dan Brown book and said, oh, this looks good mm. um, to a friend. Mm. It was two old ladies. And in my head, it was like, oh, don't buy the Dan Brown book. And um, her friend replied, no, I'm not going to read a book. And I was like, oh, please buy the Dan Brown book. <laughs> yeah, Way to move ex- the exactly. goalposts for me, British, great British public. <laughs> I used to be a snob with this, just like yeah. I used to be. With, uh, you know, there's definitely an element in, in film and music for me as well, but mm. I'm not anymore. If, yeah, if, if somebody butt. wants to read, even if, even if, even if somebody wants to buy Paolo Coelho's The Alchemist, <laughs> I won't, I won't spit in their face. It's very big of you. And, and. And, and kick them up the arse all the way to the bookshelf. Will Selford say you've sold no, out. <laughs> but no, I, I think that it's it's a good thing that people are reading. Sure. And you, ne- you never know. You read that, you might go on to something else. Or you might just keep reading that thing. But reading's good. It's good. It is good for the brain. It is. And it's... I did read, though, that sex... So, that um, 
sex toy related injuries increased as a result of the high sales of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> apparently, and I don't know this because I should say I'm not really into this kind of stuff, but apparently the book hmm. is teaching you really bad technique of all of this. Maybe that means you're not meant to oh, really? put a couple of big metal balls up your vagina and go walking around the living room. I really couldn't say. Oh. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I did wonder, actually, because, again, this is not really for me, but I can imagine this opening up a whole world to people who, <laughs> doming or subbing, yeah. who, you know, ne- literally never thought of it before. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Agnes. <laughs> we'll try the... I waited. We'll try the medium butt plug. <laughs> waited near 100 years for this. <laughs> For, for uh, awakening. I think for some of it, I think one of the marketing things is this idea of it as a kind of dare for middle-aged mm. women who are maybe a bit too old to be empowered by the idea of sort of female pornography. It's, um, Edith says this is pretty steamy. How far in do you mm. suppose we can get? You know, and it's that kind of thing. And for, um, yeah. you know, millennials riddled with insecurities and a dependence on irony, it's how much of this rubbish prose can you handle? You know, it becomes I like see a lot of, Troll 2. I don't really appreciate the self-satisfied reviews of aha just as i thought yeah. it was it was shit all along yeah there's no reason to come at this cynically all right well aside from uh, having no. recognized those are the reasons people quite like this i would like to come at one aspect of this and it's you know the one that most people would expect it's the idea of christian gray himself as mr romantic lead which mm. from this book alone is not the position he seems to be filling mm. but we'll, we'll come on to that so first of all People object to the fact that the idea of being abused in childhood immediately means you're going to have some fucked up relationship with sex when you get older. Mm-hmm. It's very lazy, I'll say that. Mm. And it stigmatizes survivors of abuse, you know, saying, oh, you probably want to kill a whole bunch of kids and stack them up. No. Yeah. I want to get to work, please, <laughs> sir. Oh, the next one was the idea that BDSM is this weird perversion that needs to be overcome mm. in order to enjoy a really fulfilling relationship. Yeah. And the idea that this is portraying not a bdsm relationship but in fact an abusive one Mm. because bdsm is about exploring these kinks and these dynamics in private first of all Mm. in a sexual context only not in like general life for the most part Mm. and that it's built on trust they don't trust each other anna and christian she's regularly described as being afraid of him yeah in the next book he's going to admit that he's not actually into being a dom he's a sadist who likes beating women who look like his oh. mother, who he hates. Oh, okay. So that complicates things. It does rather. So it's not really a BDSM relationship being portrayed. The kinky toys he has seem to be just tools that he mm. uses to ex- explore his hatred of women okay. like his mum. What, what I was going to say, and I think this stands, mm. is that okay. I think, bear with me on this, I think E.L. James is a bad writer. <laughs> <laughs> she seems unaware, sorry, of the abusive subtext of all this. Which is frustrating. Yes, I think I think this is it. Because there's, there's a line that stood out to me where Christian says the idea of frightening Anna is abhorrent to him. And I, I wonder if Christian in E.L. James's head is mm. a bit of a fucked up guy who is now... He, mm. he has BDSM as a way of, of dealing with this. Mm. He, they do say this is all about trust. Yes. Several times. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? But then, like <laughs> you said... He also has these moments where he flouts that trust. She doesn't trust him. He doesn't trust her. She's scared of him. Scared of him. Afraid for of good losing reason. him. Yeah, mm. afraid of losing him. Yeah, for him to then turn around in the second book and say that he's a sadist. Mm. I wonder if E.L. James just doesn't realise the contradictions. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I think that's that's probably it. Because she wants Which... him to be the sort of damaged but ultimately lovable guy Mm. but also for some reason wants to really push it in terms of him having real issues Mm. because again this 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 book strikes me as 
a book who's about a woman who actually comes in and you know, changes this guy. He yeah. realizes that he enjoys sharing a bed with her, doing normal couple things. Yeah. Well, it's it's you so, know it's pretty standard. It's the idea of taking a rogue, you know, the mm. rakish rogue, and just showing we all him. dream we can change him. Yeah, exactly. It's very cliched, really. But by mm. adding such abusive elements, I think for me the whole point of it was that he was very unpleasant, often in an unsexual way. Like the thing mm. about food, where he would just put food in front of her when she's not hungry and just say eat. And mm. later on, it gets rationaled that he grew up like hungry on the streets which is why he f- hates to see food wasted but that was gross that really made me feel uncomfortable the idea of anna just having to shovel bits of yeah. food down her throat when she didn't want to eat i don't know why but that, that upsets mm. me mm. i mean i, I know why <laughs> but <laughs> it stood out as particularly upsetting the food because he also wants to control yeah. her exercise regime and maybe this is just the the problem with writing a cereal you know yeah. writing it in, in episodes quickly without having time to properly think and plan it out Maybe that's it. She had no idea where she was going. She was just carrying it on. Yeah. So he's a bad boyfriend, is the point. But yeah. none of that automatically makes Grey, Shades of Grey a bad novel. 199 Murmurs does. Yeah. But Christian Bale being a shitty boyfriend doesn't. No. Because there is a big difference between a novel portraying something and condoning yeah. it. Grey's an asshole. Yeah. But he's an attractive asshole. And there's definitely a demographic out there, even if it doesn't include us, around people who have sexual fantasies about being dominated yeah. in this way. Kink is about experimenting with things that scare you and things that you're not supposed to like. That's what my kinks are generally about, mm. all the dinner ladies. And a novel is a super, face, a super safe place to explore those kinks yeah. because if you don't, you, if you don't want to, you know, keep experiencing it, you can close the book and put it down and it's gone. Yeah. It's like the quickest. Mm. It might stay with you, which will be a problem, but hopefully, if you know, abuse is that much of a trigger for you, you'll have found out about the book beforehand. I didn't think the book was saying this is what real romance is or should look like you know men were men women were women it feels like just hey this would be kinky wouldn't it let's let's think about it Mm. for a while in a safe environment oh but then fucking el james takes to twitter and says there's no abuse in the novel and it's just all fucked up well she's also an egomaniac and she's not going to just accept that there's going to be abuse in the novel is she (laughs) if if she didn't especially if she didn't intend it and i think you know there's just some contradictions there that she she didn't spot or didn't sort out and yeah, and some just, interesting stuff that I think she didn't she didn't realize she had done. Like mm. ending the book on them breaking up makes a lot of sense. It's yeah. it's upsetting. It's generally upsetting. I felt a little sad because yeah. it's like, oh, who's he gonna send kinky emails to now? Yeah, but he but he deserves it. Yeah, he went too far and oh, he absolutely you know, dire- deserves it. Okay, look, I think we've fully described why Fifty Shades of Grey is badly written but fairly interesting. Yeah, right. I th- I think so. Yeah. All right. Shall we have a one better thing? The one better thing. For me, the more interesting dynamic is the masochist side of things. And there's a very particular dynamic I'm interested in, which is explored at length in the novel Venus and Furs um, by Leopold von Sascha Masoch. Sorry if I pronounced all of that wrong, but that's where the word masochism comes from. And then interestingly, lately, was um, kind of adapted into the film... Duke of Burgundy by Peter Strickland. And I think that's the one I'll talk about. Um, I'm on slightly better footing with films. The idea is, it starts off with a relationship which is clearly sub-dom between two women. There's a lesbian relationship and there's a definite dynamic there. But it very quickly becomes apparent that actually the mas- the sadist is not into it, but the masochist is. And she's the one dictating the terms and trying to control the role play that they're doing. 
And so it's interesting because it's the masochist who has all of the power and the um, sadist is kind of consumed into it. And a very similar thing happens in Venus and Furs where a man goes out to try and find a seductress and ends up making one. And it's about the sort of difficulties that the sadist has in trying to keep up with the demands and the expectations of the masochist. And it's an interesting sort of inverse portrayal of those roles I find really fascinating. So I'd recommend both of those, I think. My issue with erotic prose a lot of the time is it's people try and make too much of it it can be too flowery or um they try to make it too arty or too mm. too verbose and it detracts yeah. from the very visceral mm. sort of base feelings that yes you know, make up sex yeah you know there's lust and sex and fucking and all these things yep as abrasive as, as the, the sex scenes in American Psycho are, I probably can't recommend that for this, but I'm going to... So what I'm, what I'm going to do instead is um, to recommend a couple of things. First mm. off, Haruki Murakami writes mm. very good sex scenes. Yes. They're very, very weird, <laughs> but there's a very matter-of-factness about them. Yeah. It's almost anatomical mm. in its simplicity, <laughs> but it works for something that is, is actually erotic and... Uh, is embarrassing to read in public places would be alan moore's graphic novel the lost girls fuck yeah get it out um, get it to the library ask your bookseller to order it in with a, <laughs> a big <laughs> smile whilst, on your face whilst, whilst not breaking their gaze Have it, has it come yet <laughs> you ordered it 12 <laughs> minutes ago oh but i want it ever so much <laughs> it, it it's a story about now tell me if i'm wrong is it alice wendy from peter pan yep and dorothy um dorothy and, Dor- and Dorothy, it's just yeah. those three. Yeah. Post, you know, their fairy tale yeah. endings, uh, where they regale all of the sexual encounters <laughs> of, of of their of their lives up up until then. Yeah, it reimagines their stories as sort yeah. of sexual a encounters. saucy retelling. The, yeah. The one I always remember is the idea of um, Dorothy fucking three men, each of whom represents yeah. one of the, and one of the men she fucked, you know, was a very courageous man but lacked spirit, whilst another <laughs> one was a very dull boy who just needed a brain. It's it's very playful <laughs> in that way. Peter yeah. Pan is probably the most disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With Captain Hook reimagined as a scary pedophile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but having said that, it is erotic. Oh, yeah. It really is. Um, no, it, yeah, powerfully. I mean, it, it helps that it's um, visual as well. Oh, we should mention novel. Melinda Gibbons. Uh, Melinda Gebby yeah. did the illustrations and they are extraordinarily erotic. So I guess that, I mean, that has an edge over E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey for <laughs> having the illustrations as well. But mm. there's e- everything about it. It's not just the images that you're looking at. It's the mood it captures as yeah. well. And you're just, you're just looking at screenshots now. I am. And it's not the erotica that's getting me. It's just how beautiful the color work is. It's all, it all looks like it's oh, yeah. been done with like chalks. Mm. There's something very childish and um, beautiful about it. It's, it's really gorgeous and very peculiarly English, I feel. It's very English pornography. <laughs> Isn't there the line, I was wetter than a Baptist picnic or something? <laughs> That's definitely Alan Moore. I'm not sure where in his um, yeah. wonderful bibliography it appears. but <laughs> um, Okay, so check those out and um, don't be embarrassed if you like Fifty Shades of Grey. The one better thing. Whilst on uh... the subject of things that are actually good... How about we give the ladies and some gents our top 10 favourite novels of all time? Yeah! <laughs> um, do you have any observations or concessions first? Because I would like to say there's no hard science fiction. You know, the hard science fiction. Mm. Um, there's none of that. There's none of spaceships and foreign worlds and, you know, dif- distant planets. But I do love that stuff. And in particular, the works mm. of E.N.M. Banks. It's yeah. just that as much as I love the collected 
sort of body of the culture novels, no one of them ever really blew me away. Well, what I've done mm. is I've chosen a very literary top ten that, oh, that borrows from all genres. <laughs> so we'll we'll see exactly what I've taken <laughs> in a moment. Um, all all I want to all I want to mention really are the honourable mentions who didn't quite make it. Uh, Siri mm. Husfeld's The Blazing World. Yeah, uh, Simone de Beauvoir's All Men Are Mortal. Uh, ah, very prominently featured last time I saw a top ten of yours. So yes, it's yeah. almost there. But I read a lot of very very good books in the last couple of years. <laughs> David Copperfield's mm. and Michael Faber's Crimson Petal in the White. I'll get. I'll, I'll mention that a bit more later. Jane Eyre, Secret History by Donna Tartt. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, just <laughs> unreal. And La- uh, Laurent Binet's H H H H, which is one of the best historical novels that I've ever read. Various works by Dostoevsky I've always loved, Kafka. Yeah, yeah there's some wonderful authors. That, yes, I have read quite a few of the sort of classical works. I'm a little distressed that none of them made the list. I didn't have room for mm. Don Quixote or um, The Three Musketeers, which I'm a big fan of, um, or any James Joyce, um, whom mm. I love, or Proust even. But um, yeah. I ended up going for the ones that had the biggest personal effect on me. Yeah. And I think that shows in the, um, in the results you're going to get. So let's go. Do you want to start? Sure. Uh, my number 10 is From the Fatherland with Love by Ryu Murakami. Nobu awoke on his American army surplus cot to the squawking of a chicken. The bird was inside his tent, pecking at scraps of food on the ground. He took his time opening his eyes, then raised his left wrist to his face and squinted at his watch. The little hand pointed at 11, but that didn't necessarily mean anything. <laughs> From the Fatherland with Love is Ryu Murakami's novel about North Korea's fictional invasion of Japan of a Japan that's failing economically, socially, and culturally. He's known, obviously, for writing these obscene little novels about Tokyo ultraviolence and gruesome fetishes Mm. and vengeful (laughs) murder women. And while they're all very entertaining, this is written with more consideration and it comes, I feel, from a deeper place. So Mm. it reflects Murakami's frustration with Japanese culture and politics, especially how stoicism can become passivity, can become impotency. Mm. So you have the crack North Korean military team that invade Japan from a baseball game, the responding forces and a gang of misfits who throw up the only real defense. But this isn't about drawing caricatures or demonizing North Korea. It's about looking at the differences between cultures and the people these cultures create. Okay, my number 10 is Steppenwolf by Hermann Hesse for Mad People Only. The day had gone by as days tend to. I had whiled away the hours, gently killing time in the only way I know how to. Unworldly and withdrawn as my life is. I'd spent a few hours working, poring over old books. For two hours I'd been in pain, the way people getting on in years are. I had taken a powder and rejoiced at the outcome, for pain could be outwitted. So this was a book that my mother gave to me when I was a teenager. I think at that stage... She was already very well acquainted with my particular anxieties and social awkwardness. Um, she said it meant a lot to her in her teenage years, and um, I read it, and it it really is so relatable. It's just a character. Uh, sorry, I should say that the novel concerns a man, um, a, a very vaguely <laughs> disguised version of Herman Hesse. He spends his time wandering around this city, um, ruminating on various lofty subjects such as classical music and poetry and basically just being sick of everyone around him and how uneducated they are and how dull they are and uh, Mm -hmm. lamenting that he is absolutely dependent on people to feel love and yet also has a strong instinct to shy away from everyone. It's basically just about someone who's too much of an asshole to enjoy life and its simple pleasures. And Hess says that it's actually his most misunderstood, with most people focusing on the very destructive first half of the book and not the redemptive second half. So there's a bit of a fight club thing going on, where it's like, no, no, you weren't meant to be inspired by this bit. This is the bit where I'm talking about the things I hate about myself. Yeah, it's great. Let's all do that. 
I'm a Steppenwolf too. You shouldn't want to. Oh, right. Fine. Congratulations. I'm just like Vicky Pollard. <laughs> anyway, it's about overcoming pretension and also self-labeling because one of the things that he meets a woman Hermione who Mm. teaches him that there aren't just two versions to himself a wolf and a man there's loads of versions within him and the the book is telling you to keep exploring yourself because you are endless and don't settle for any one thing that you've decided that you are because you have the capacity for extraordinary endlessly crazy things Speaking of which, I really respect a book a book that is just willing to turn into sheer fucking madness in its final chapters, mm. which Steppenwolf does. Number nine, The Wise Man's Fear by Patrick Rothfuss. Mm. Dawn was coming. The Waystone Inn lay in silence, and it was a silence of three parts. The most obvious part was a vast, echoing quiet made by things that were lacking. If there had been a storm, raindrops would have tapped and pattered against the cellar's vines behind the inn. Thunder would have muttered and rumbled and chased the silence down the road like fallen autumn leaves. If there had been travellers stirring in their rooms, they would have stretched and grumbled the silence away like fraying, half-forgotten dreams. If there had been music... But no, of course there was no music. In fact, there were none of these things, and so the silence remained. Beautiful. (laughs) This is the second book in the tale of Quoth and his many adventures of being cool at magic and bedding sweet babes. (laughs) Seriously, it's a recent entry, as I only got around to reading the first two in the King Killer Chronicles series, because yes, the third hasn't been released yet, and I'm not going to add my frustration about it here. He's trying. (laughs) Ah! He's hanging out with George R. R. Martin all day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Flicking beans at each other and giggling. (laughs) He's he's addressed it at least more than George R. R. Martin has. George (laughs) R. R. Martin's just been like, I don't really appreciate everyone saying that I'm going to die soon, so I better hurry up. (laughs) What a prick. I can't believe you said that. Yeah. It's probably the shortest amount of time it's taken me to read a thousand pages. Mm. It Not only does it have that page turner quality that good genre vic- fiction has in spades, but it's just an in- incredible world that he's, mm. he's made here. It <laughs> irons out a few of the knowing winks and elbow nudges of the first novel. Quite mm. a few times there'd be a little line like, oh, things only happen that way in stories. And then he'd go on to subvert expectations, except that he just set it up. So it was a bit, right. eh. But <laughs> in, in, this, in this one, he just forewent. Mm. He foregoes all of this and he just pulls the rug from under you at every opportunity. It made reading The Wise Man's Fear a really nerve-wracking and uncomfortable experience. I was treated mean and kept thoroughly keen. Ah. The, the sort of the f- physics of this world are as complex as if they've been established for thousands of years. And I think that's what I really like about this world. It feels old and established. We know that Quoth is going to end up as somebody great who does something terrible. Mm. But you're reading his formative years. Mm. And how he's he goes from strength to strength, becoming more powerful, drawing people to him who who you know can't help but like him or hate him. Mm. It's the the stories as well that are told within this story. There are story upon story. There's lore mm. upon myth upon legend. You know, everyone is a storyteller in this, and it's as 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 well as the the whole construct of the novel being him regaling his life story to a scribe that's been looking for him. Within that story, there are countless stories being told. It goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about us being a tribe of storytellers. This is what life is made up of. Our experiences are made up of. We tell stories. That adds in no small part to the to the feeling of things being old and established in this world. My number nine is The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton. The 12 men congregated in the smoking room of the Crown Hotel gave the impression of a party accidentally met. From the variety of their comportment and dress, frock coats, tailcoats, Norfolk jackets with buttons of horn, yellow moleskin, cambric and twill, They might have been twelve strangers on a railway car, each bound for a separate quarter of a city that possessed fog and tides enough to divide them. Indeed, the studied isolation of each man as he pored over his paper, or leaned forward to tap his ashes into the grate, or placed the splay of his hand upon the bays to take his shot at billiards, 
conspired to form the very type of bodily silence that occurs late in the evening on a public railway, deadened here not by the slur and, ch and clunk of the coaches, but by the fat clatter of the rain. So the novel features 12 main characters, um, each of which is based on one of the 12 star signs, the Zodiac, um, and the characteristics generally associated with them. Secondary characters mm. are based on heavenly bod bodies in our solar system, such as the sun, moon, etc. And the book is split into 12 parts, each half the size of the preceding part, uh, to mirror the faces wow. of the moon. So, a terribly contrived mess? No, because in spite of all those <laughs> that structure and limitations that she's put on herself, I didn't notice any of it in the book proper. No, only was it was only when later, when reading up on reviews, that people more knowledgeable about such things observed that this is what she had done. The characters are amazing; they're so fleshed out. They don't feel like just a list of you know Mystic Meg caricatures. They are um their own people, and the world is full and extraordinary. And it's set on the um New Zealand coast. Um, yes, in fact, the story is about Walter Moody, a man who arrives from Edinburgh to make his fortunes on the Gold Coast of New Zealand. Mm. Um, and whilst there, he stumbles into a room with 12 strangers, all of whom are discussing a series of unsolved mysteries on the island, such as the um, attempted suicide of a drug fiend, um, the disappearance of a wealthy young man, and the sudden appearance of a very large fortune in a very poor man's hut and then it, it goes about describing how this all happened in flashback and in various stories and it's just such an incredibly complex and highly inventive story where sudden meaning is lended to things that seemed inconsequential in another timeline and it's just so compelling how fun this plot is it it's an intricate plot that unfolds in beautiful language and a a brisk pace. You know, speaking of books that fly by, this is 800 pages long, but I think I, I read it in a few weeks. It's um, one of my favourite novels because of the richness of its prose and the density of the world that it portrays. Mm. And it's just really well accomplished. It's, a, it's like a place I like going back to. Great. My number eight is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke. Yay. Some years ago, there was in the city of York a society of magicians. They met upon the third Wednesday of every month and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of English magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say they had never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. But with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. <laughs> Set in an England where magic is all but dead, most unlike this one, just one magician remains, the reclusive Mr. Norrell, who's bent on owning or quashing all instances of magic on these fair isles. The Napoleonic Wars are raging, and when Jonathan Strange emerges as a new magician, with uh, very little reading or academic learning, a gentleman's rivalry begins. But the dangers of dealing with darker, deeper powers than theirs is ever-present. Hmm. The man with a thistle-down hair befriends Strange's wife, Arabella. And as the two magicians' influence grows and she begins to lose her grip on the physical world, they must ally and stop dark powers from taking everything they love. Now, with my poor words, I've made it sound horribly contrived, but like another of my entries further up, there's a world in the footnotes. It's the, the, the detail here, the allusions to literary movements and characters from already established works from the 19th century, and the care given to every character, every setting is so steeped in... A very strange sort of realism that it doesn't seem so far-fetched to believe that all of this really did take place when Susanna Clarke says it did. It's irreverent where it needs to be, and when it's not, it's dark. It's really, really dark. It's also another story that doesn't take any prisoners. It doesn't let a, a simple thing like literary norms get in the way of, uh, 
you know, really chewing up your heart. Good stuff. My number eight is Birdsong by Sebastian Fawkes. The Boulevard de Cange was a broad, quiet street that marked the eastern flank of the city of Amiens. The wagons that rolled in from Lille and Arras in the north made directly into the tanneries and mills of the Saint-Louis quarter without needing to use the rutted, leafy road. The town side of the boulevard backed onto substantial gardens which were squared off and apportioned with civic precision to the houses they adjoined. On the damp grass were chestnut trees, lilac and willows, cultivated to give shade and quietness to their owners. So, this was one of the novels I had to read for my A-level in English literature. Mm. And show off that I was, and deeply insecure as I was, let's go with. <laughs> I read it in a weekend, and accidentally fell in love with it. Um, it's the story of a young man, Stephen. His name is Stephen, and he goes to France to stay with a family in 1910. Tensions are already beginning to arise. He embarks on a wild affair with a married woman. Uh, and then, upon the cessation of that affair, we cut forward to World War One, and he's in the trenches. And then shortly after that, we cut even further forward to a storyline in the 1970s in which his granddaughter is investigating his story. So it's an epic spanning a century of time, telling this huge story about this family, all dealing with, in some way or another, the fallout of World War One, albeit from very different vantage points. And it's, it's the war sequences that really stood out to me. The first day of the Somme and the battles beneath the trenches in the claustrophobic tunnels, they are told in visceral detail. Um... In England, you learn about World War One from primary school onwards, but this was the first time I remember really feeling the horror of it and the sheer mm. terror that must have gripped so many millions of young men who went off to fight this war. It, the sheer trauma inflicted on an entire generation. And there's so much life and beauty, especially in that first section set in pre-war France, but it's then just about the extent to which the men are just fucking broken. And it's truly devastating. Five stars! <laughs> my number seven is infinite jest by david foster wallace i am seated in an office surrounded by heads and bodies my posture is consciously congruent to the shape of my hard chair this is a cold room in university administration wood walled remington hung double windowed against the november heat insulated from administrative sounds by the reception area outside at which uncle charles mr de Lint and i were lately received and i like that that tells you absolutely nothing about what <laughs> this 1200 page book is about <laughs> speaking of get your two bookmarks ready because uh <laughs> you're gonna get a severe case of the howling fantods if you don't follow the, the footnotes as well infinite jest a film is making the rounds that is so good you can't do anything but watch it until you die the wheelchair assassins are a quebecois fringe group planning a major geopolitical event oh and almost everyone else in boston is hopelessly addicted to something whether it's booze weed or secrecy so rather than try to summarize any of what happens in this 80 kaplausen page novel i'll just say as, as well as being caustic and hilarious endlessly inventive and original it's actually a physically painful look at addiction in all its forms mm. the struggles of everybody to just just get on with living in the light of david foster wallace's suicide it makes it harsher but it fits so it can be a hard read, but it's also such a pleasure. What an amazing mind this guy had. Please, please, please just give this one a go. My next one is The Dice Man by Luke Reinhardt, a.k.a. George Cockcroft. Oh, hang on a minute. That's a five. Oh, sincere. Shit. <laughs> the dullest option. I am a large man with big butcher's hands, great oak thighs, rock-jawed head, and massive thick-lens glasses. I'm six foot four and weigh close to 230 pounds. I look like Clark Kent, except when I take off my business suit, I am barely faster than my wife, 
only slightly more powerful than men half my size, and leap buildings not at all no matter how many leaps I'm given. The Dice Man is wickedly funny, still. It has a tantalising premise, oh sorry, which I should explain, it's about a man who suddenly decides that the only way to live completely free is to completely destroy the ego and the and your own sense of identity, and the only way to do that, or to start doing that, is to start making all of the important decisions in your life by throwing a dice. Assigning mm-hmm. options to it, and just following whatever it does, no matter how horrific the option is. It's a tantalizing premise, because you just want to see... It's like a you know an experiment, a social experiment. You just want to see what he's going to do, what he's going to force himself to do next. And, you know, it, it extends to things like um, experimenting with homosexuality, various drugs. In the end, murder becomes on the cards. It's constantly entertaining. The philosophical propositions that it offers are engaging and fairly disturbing at times. But I really remember the times of genuine sadness regarding his stupid commitment to this ridiculous dice life <laughs> that he has, which is, you know, interesting. Mm. But it's like... The impact on his family that he loves and who whom has so well written is just heartbreaking. I don't know. My enduring memories are just fabulous dialogue, shocking moments, yeah. and being utterly riveted to every fucking word of it. Um, I've never mm. considered the dice life, dice life, my dice life myself. That's a fucking sentence. But I can imagine how satisfying it would be to sacrifice free will to chance. There's something reassuring about it. Mm. I know it's very strange. My number six, The mm. Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. Dumas. On February the twenty fourth, eighteen fifteen, the lookout at Notre Dame de la Garde signaled the lookout at Notre Dame de la Garde signaled <laughs> the arrival of the three master pharaon coming from Smyrna, Trieste, and Naples. As usual, a coastal pilot immediately left the port, sailed mm-hmm. hard by the Chateau d'If, and boarded the ship between the Cap de Morgeau and the island of Rio. This is the ultimate and original adventure novel. <laughs> Ed- Edmund Dante is wrongly imprisoned for treason and imprisoned in the Chateau d'If. His mm. jealous rival Guy Pierce framed him and stepped into his <laughs> marital shoes. <laughs> in, uh, in prison, he's taught all manner of sword and wordplay by a fellow prisoner and is made privy-, privy to the existence of a fantastic wealth. Using all of these, he exacts delicious, comprehensive and devastating revenge <laughs> on all who wronged him. It's the original page turner, just mm. constant intrigue and fun. Um, if you're looking to read your first classical novel and don't know where to start, I would recommend this one. Yeah, Like all best literary fiction, it doesn't limit itself to some dreary kitchen sink genre. Mm. It's t- it takes the best of show and, yeah. and drives <laughs> forward with true, just truly amazing prose. It's mm. written with such skill, and every speck of revenge is utterly delicious. <laughs> and um, there is something at the theatre. Hold, hold on a moment, let me just get the name of this. The Grand Grinoire. There is, yeah, to it. The sort of high theatre of it all. Yeah. My number six is Never Let Me Go by Kazu Ishiguro. My name is Kathy H. I am thirty-one years old, and I've been a carer now for over eleven years. That sounds long enough, I know, but actually, they want me to go on for another eight months until the end of this year. That'll make it almost exactly 12 years. Now, I know my being a carer so long isn't necessarily because they think I'm fantastic at what I do. There are some really good carers who've been told to stop after just two or three years, and I can think of one carer at least who went on for a full 14 years despite being a complete waste of space. So I'm not trying to boast, but I know for a fact they've been pleased with my work, and by and large, I have too. So... It's a very strange feeling I get when I think about Never Let Me Go. Something so sweet in such a quaint and terribly English way, and so full of youthful Mm. naivete and big hearts and silliness, Mm. is also something so diabolically cruel. A nightmarish scenario, initially steeped in mystery and then inescapable 
in its um, bluntness, and yet also still so wrapped in euphemism and childish stories to try and get around it. I should explain, um, it it seems to be, at at least initially, about a group of um, children attending a school, Um, but there's something strange about this school that we're not told. Um, There's various references to things that don't quite make sense and make it very special and and talk of a, a purpose, a very special purpose that everyone must fulfill. It's, it seems to be about three friends and the way in which they intertwine and sort of relate to each other. Um, Ishiguro keeps writing novels about frustrated love. Love that's barred by expectation, by circumstance, by memory-stealing snakes. The buried giant was weird. Mm-hmm. And here by just the entire world, an incredibly sinister dystopian system that's been put in place that you find out about as the thing goes on. And there's this powerful sense of the young being betrayed by the old and the young having to accept huge terrifying things that they really shouldn't have to at this stage mm. and just the idea that they've been so thoroughly betrayed there's a there's a heartbreak and an outrage to it 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 generally just makes me tear up just thinking about the situation and the sort of sweetness of the characters trapped in it but it's it's just one of the most sadly charming books that i've ever read and i hate that ishiguro can do sweet so well because he doesn't mean things with it. <laughs> Completion awaits. You just made me think about never let me go now. <laughs> never do that. Oh, speaking of crying like a fucking child, <laughs> my number five is a fine balance by Rahinton Mystery. Oh god, how's this going to end? <laughs> the Morning Express, bloated with passengers, slowed to a crawl, then lurched forward suddenly as though to resume full speed. The train's brief deception jolted its riders. The bulge of humans hanging out of the doorway distended perilously like a soap bubble at its limit. Set in India in the later half of the 20th century, so Mm. post-Empire and smack bang in the middle of the emergency, Mm. the book follows a group of four new friends and how their friendship develops against the tumultuous political backdrop of India throughout the 70s and into the 80s. This is very nicely told in the form of a patchwork quilt that's being worked on by Dina, I think, Mm. uh, and then later on by the rest of the friends. The relationship is unlikely in itself because it take you know taking place in a country in which a caste system operates, yeah. uh, as well as severe political corruption, cronyism, and petty vengeance, almost indiscriminate. Is their newfound place in the world enough to protect them against these evil forces? Well, com- considering what we've just said, probably not. So, uh, <laughs> but don't worry because it's not a spoiler. It's not really about that. Mm. It's 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 better to see it as a snapshot of turmoil and the attempt to find Mm. humanity within it's a beautiful book and one that's always well received when i recommend it uh oprah really liked it as well so um so there's that going going for it but going back to the title of a fine balance Mm. he includes a line of balzac's at the beginning of this book and it says holding this book in your hand sinking back in your soft armchair you will say to yourself perhaps it will amuse me and after you've read this story of great misfortunes, you will no doubt dine well, blaming the author for your own insensitivity, accusing him of wild exaggeration and flights of fancy. But rest assured, this tragedy is not a fiction. All is true. And that very nicely sums it up. Mm. My number five is On the Beach by Neville Shute. Lieutenant Commander Peter Holmes of the Royal Australian Navy woke soon after dawn. He lay drowsily for a while, lulled by the warm comfort of Mary sleeping beside him watching the first light of the Australian sun upon the cretone curtains of their room. He knew from the sun's rays that it was about five o'clock. Very soon the light would wake his baby daughter Jennifer and her cot, and then they would have to get up and start doing things. No need to start before that happened. He could lie a little while longer. It is about a future in which atomic bombs have gone off. There is a nuclear wind drifting around the world, killing off its inhabitants. In the um, depressing and isolated city of Melbourne, a Ugh. group of I know right, a group of survivors um, 
just await death as it gradually breezes around the world. Um, there were some brief distractions, such as one of the naval commander, the one I just read about there. Um, he has he is told that there is a signal coming from Washington, D.C., and they sail a boat up there to find out if someone's actually managed to survive this shit show. Um, it does not look good. So it's another super dreary novel about the inevitability mm. of death. Everyone points to this being an anti-nuclear novel, and it is, But and that's very important, but for me... The radiation could be anything. It could be a mm. tidal wave. It could be an asteroid heading towards the Earth. What matters is that it's yeah. death. Undeniable, unavoidable death, and it's on its way. So it's about how the characters busy themselves. It has a really sad but profound message about not giving up in the face of absolute and certain death, a theme that is very important in my number one book as well. Characters plant trees that they'll never get to see. They grow gardens, the fruits of which they'll never taste, and they attend classes to perfect skills that they won't live to use. Hmm. Um, Death frightens me like nothing else, and one of the scariest things about it for me is its ability to render pointless things that are done with love. So the idea of striving and overcoming that, and seeing the worth in doing something simply for the moment in which you are doing it, it's something I can really relate to and kind of aspire to. Fuck me, this is a depressing exercise. <sighs> Should we talk about Fifty Shades again? <laughs> <laughs> that was bad, isn't it? <laughs> it was bad. It's also just really well drawn with a very quaint image of this little Australian town of Melbourne and its doomed <laughs> inhabitants. Doomed they are. It's <laughs> about the, the prof- <laughs> it's about the profound beauty of simple pleasures. Yeah, well, I, th- I think I think come come this what is it episode 87 of one good thing podcast i think everyone pretty much knows that the two of us fear death more than anything else <laughs> hence the podcast <laughs> yep we'll live forever here <laughs> my number four the savage detectives by roberto bolaño november the second i've been cordially invited to join the visceral realists i accepted of course there was no initiation ceremony it was better that way this book was my introduction to Blanio. It's split into mm. three parts, but basically follows the hunt for a legendary Mexican poet by Arturo Bolano and Ulysses Lima, mm. uh, who are recurring characters in Bolano's work. And I think Arturo Bolano is Bolano's alter ego and narrates a lot of his other works. The first section follows a 17-year-old named Juan Garcia Madero, who becomes acquaintances with the two poets and joins a group called the Visceral Realists. The second part is more than 40 narrators regaling stories of Bolano and Lima, their adventures, their struggles, their poetry, telling a life of work and abuse through these other voices. And then the third takes us back to Juan, Bolano and Lima as they get closer to this poet. I'm assured that reading Bolano in Spanish is even more transportive, transportative than the <laughs> English, but that's what struck me as I read this book over the course of several mornings drinking black coffee on the hour-long bus wo- uh, commute to work I had then. It sounds redundant, but Bolano tells stories. Not a story from beginning to end, but a collection of stories that may begin and end somewhere, but it's really not relevant. What matters is the mm. feel of the whole as you come closer and closer to the conclusion. Bolaño is a s- superb writer in this respect, um, a constant source of inspiration and wonder when I read him. He's the kind of person that I re- when I read, I, I want to write. His prose is fluid. It gives the sense of everything already having happened, and this lends itself to this idea of storytelling and again this whole this tribal thing it's not just as simple as a novel things are constantly happening constantly going on and all you need to do is just open the book at a page and see what's going on in this corner of the world or or this corner in this corner it harks back to his early career as a poet as a, a firebrand um in chile and you know yeah again speaks of what what could have been it's a it's an absolutely stunning book right let's have something a bit more adventurous than my constant trudges through death and misery larry mcmurtry's lonesome dove haha <laughs> fooled you <laughs> oh oh boy it was a joke all along <laughs> that was a twist when augustus came out on the porch the blue pigs were eating a rattlesnake 
Not a very big one. It had probably just been crawling around looking for shade when it ran into the pigs. They were having a fine tug of war with it, and its rattling days were over. The sow had it by the neck, and the shoat by the tail. You pigs get, Augustus said, kicking the shoat. Head on down to the creek if you want to eat that snake. It was the porch he begrudged them, not the snake. Pigs on the porch just made things hotter. And things were already hot enough. Enter Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> For a great epic yarn. On one hand, it is it is actually a big bunch of beautifully drawn characters setting off on a grand adventure. They're tr- it's it's um, about two old cowboys retired from the business, um, tired of violence and all the rest of it. And they mm. decide to go on one last, after a reckless character re-enters their lives, they decide to go on one last adventure across the United States from Texas to... Montana. Uh, They decide to head on up to Montana in order to drive a significant amount of cattle up there, thereby making a fortune. Um, Along the way, they encounter danger, some interesting characters, and just experience the epic landscape of the American West. The endless frontiers, the sublime nature, and just the boundless sense of adventure and possibility that comes from this extraordinary, extraordinarily large place. Uh, To come back to the darkness, though. Death follows these men. Oh, yeah. Sudden, violent, meaningless death. There's one particular death in this that is told from the perspective of the man that's dying. Um, he is clubbed in the head and then feels his assailant undoing his trousers, but he doesn't have the energy to fight back, and instead he just sort mm. of drifts into seductive and very deep sleep. And then we cut to another character's perspective who stumbles upon that man's body to discover that, in fact, after he had slipped away into that you know sleep of death, his genitals had been cut off and shoved into his mouth. So yeah. there's the inhumanity of that. Usually that would be sort of set dressing to show that there are cannibals afoot, you know, but it's not. It's happened to a character you've known well for a long time yeah. and a, an, a, an obscene thing has happened to him that's utterly dehumanized him. And he didn't care in his last moments. He just, he was so tired and just yeah. thought, I'd better just sleep. That's <sighs> the thing to do now. And he can just do what he wants. And oh, my God. It's it's one of the scariest things I've ever read. Hi ho, silver away! <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah, there's a, there's a raw power in the in in one of the villains in that in that yeah. book, and also yeah, just the overriding sense of the in, insignificance of life. <laughs> yeah, it's like maybe maybe she'll never fall in love with you. Don't worry, she might get scouted by an Indian in the next. <laughs> The next sequence. McMurtry himself actually said of the novel, I thought I had written about a harsh time and some pretty harsh people, but to the public at large, I produced something nearer to an idealization. Instead of a poor man's inferno filled with violence, faithlessness, and betrayal, it actually delivered a kind of gone with, gone with the wind of the West, a turnabout they'll be mulling for a long, long time. So you're, in, you're not meant to enjoy it, you pricks. Yeah. You're enjoying it wrong. Yeah, that's definitely not what I thought. No, no, fuck. 100% tragic, yeah. u- u- ultra-violent uh, hell that I'm glad that I'm never a part of. <laughs> Thank God. Did I lend you that? Yeah, you did, initially. I believe mm. we're in China, in fact. And um... Ah, that's the point. I was, I was reading that in China. Yeah, of course. Mm. That changed a lot. <laughs> changed the context. It's funny, it's dark, it's thrilling, and it has a whole bunch of moments in it that you will never forget. Okay, well, my number three is The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami. Beautiful. Get your thinking gear around this totally fucking Murakami opening. (laughs) When the phone rang, I was in the kitchen, boiling a pot full of spaghetti and whistling along to an FM broadcast of the overture to Rossini's The Thieving Magpie, which has to be the perfect music for cooking pasta. 
didn't you mean the Beatles? Something by the Beatles. <laughs> now that reads a lot like John Crace's digested read of Haruki Murakami. <laughs> it's a jazz-loving, whiskey-drinking, spaghetti-cooking <laughs> guy who likes women with nice ears and is looking for a cat. And that is basically... <laughs> It is basically what the book's about. Um, other than that, Toru Okada's wife goes missing and he embarks on a slow sort of investigation that brings him across all kinds of weirdness. There's so much in this book to to go into, but his um, Toru's investigations brings him across uh, a pair of twins with weird sexual tendencies. He stumbles into a whole period of Japanese military history surrounding the Second World War and uh, I think a Russian who likes skinning people alive. And all, all of this plays into the mystery of where his wife is. Whilst he's doing this, he's he's learning more about uh, sort of dark politics in Japan, um, po- uh, powers beyond his, his ken and his control. Mm-hmm. And he learns that um, with the help of a woman who either kisses, sticks her tongue in or pokes her fingers into dark patches that are appearing on his own body he's allowed to enter different realms i think is is what this is there's also a woman with a very nice ear who um who has slight slight mental problems and has to go away and leave him alone for a long long time it's it's so hard to pray a murakami novel without it sounding ridiculous what really makes it special is the same sort of calm precision that a zen monk would apply to one question in a full 24 hours of thinking it's really hypnotic to read and why the wonder wonder bird chronicle is more special than any of his other novels it feels the most accomplished it's also a quiet study of loneliness and he does that he also does that really well what you get with murakami is a real sense of he, he writes with the ultimate sense of of, of of music of food of the literature that his characters read and a really wonderful sense of time and place mm. but also timelessness and placelessness <laughs> so it's 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 a really weird mix of stuff yeah. that just makes murakami this really mesmerizing read he's inimitable okay right my number three is v by thomas pynchon hmm. christmas eve 1955 benny profane wearing black levi's suede jacket sneakers and big cowboy hat happened to pass through norfolk virginia given to sentimental impulses he thought he'd look in on the sailor's grave his old tin cans tavern on east main street He got there by way of the arcade, at the east main end of which sat an old street singer with a guitar and an empty sterno can for donations. Out in the street, a chief yeoman was trying to urinate in the gas tank of a 54-packard patrician, and five or six seamen apprentice were standing around him, giving him encouragement. (laughs) I adore Pynchon. I'm still catching up on his works. They are very dense and challenging novels. Um, I was hung up on Gravity's Rainbow for about a year of my life. Mm-hmm. I have now read it three times, which is actually maybe why I prefer V, um, his okay. very first novel, because I haven't agonized over it. I haven't ruthlessly interrogated it for meaning and nuance and the way in which it's interconnected. It sits with me now as this gorgeous, exotic, and utterly baffling dream. You know, like my weekend with Susan, the dinner lady. <laughs> it's It's not a book to be made sense of it's a little collection of sublime episodes including alligator hunting in the sewers underneath manhattan a venetian Mm -hmm. art heist a murderous ballet performance the quest for a decent nose job in manhattan a southwest african siege and of course the ever-present v it's just it's it's a beautiful set of episodes which all feel like novels in their own right you're suddenly introduced to these characters who have these great dynamics and um Fabulous names as well. I should mention a few of them because Pynchon mm. is the best, literally the best person at naming characters ever. Absolutely. In V, you have Benny Profane, Rachel Owlglass, Herbert Stencil, uh, Mafia Winsome, Deb Sensei, 
Esther Harvitz, McClintic Sphere, Ferguson Mixolydian, mm. Shale Shonmaker, and of course Pig Bodine. Of course. It's, he's got these wonderful characters who all have these big personalities and just a, a huge sense of life to them, no matter how briefly they're sort of mentioned. V is, it's like a whirlwind tour through the imagination of a deeply intelligent but very silly and playful mind. Mm. Um, there's often profanity in there, you know, people urinating into various things and sort of kinky sex carried out in... At one point, and, and just an utter sense of reckless playfulness. At one stage, a character decides that he's going to apply for a job because he was sitting in a park thinking about a previous sexual encounter and noticed that his erection put a, a crease into the newspaper on his lap, <laughs> just on the point where he decided not where there was a job thing. So he decided, oh, I should go here. And there's just a wonderful madcapness to it mm. as well. It's just that craziness that yeah. kind of makes sense, but is also utterly ridiculous that I. I adore and I mean just this ability to summon up a Venetian art heist out of nothing is just so richly evocative mm. it's it's beautiful and I love Pynchon for that and V is so far my favorite that I've read but I'm gonna keep going all right number two for me is a death in the family by Carlo Vacanelsco ah. for the heart life is simple it beats for as long as it can then it stops sooner or later one day this pounding action will seize of its own accord and the blood will begin to run towards the body's lowest point where it will collect in a small pool, visible from the outside as a dark, soft patch on ever whiter skin as the temperature sinks, the limbs stiffen and the intestines drain. These changes in the first hours occur so slowly and take place with such inexorability that there is something almost ritualistic about them, as though life capitulates according to specific rules, a kind of gentleman's agreement to which the representatives of death also adhere in as much as they always wait until life has retreated before they launch their invasion of the new landscape. Oh, I feel sick. <laughs> yeah, this is the first book in a cycle of six, given the name My Struggle, which in Norwegian is Min Kampf. Mm. Basically, it's about the life of Karl Uwe Kanauskor. This one specifically is about the death of his father, and it's full of his ruminations on their relationship, his upbringing, and how mm. how it's affected him and made him the person that he is today. In you know, th- thrown into that is some incredible analysis of the most mundane events of anyone's life it's a really riveting and kind of mind-blowing revelations about um art and, and literature th- thrown in depending on where his tangents go it's a, it's essentially autobiographical with a, with a literary bent and it's it's endearing as much as it is unbelievable that he'd write with this level of honesty about his closest friends and family it has actually led to to lawsuits and uh, a lot of a lot of fallings out um, in his personal life but uh, and he deals with that in the sixth book where you know he 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 has to weigh up his his literary convictions and the 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 real world scrutiny that they get and you know why why does he write his prose is so focused and brilliant that even the most mundane activity like paying for ice cream with a contactless credit card reads like Proust biting into his Madeline. Mm. Whether or not you identify with Canal Score as a, as a person, it's his observations that are universal and it's utterly disarming. Reading Canal Score is, is getting a sense of of, of what it means to live and trying to make sense of the endless stories that make up a life and accepting what beauty there is whether it comes from the natural world or within our own minds and with canal score it can it can come from both and he expounds on that the full six books is the most astonishing work i've ever read mm. the thing is the friend who recommended i read canal score didn't even bother trying to describe the work mm. just read it he said and i did and when i recommend it to everyone i meet i do exactly the same honestly it defies definition when you, when you look at the book with his bearded face on the front it looks like a it looks like a terrible scandinavian crime novel mm. um when you try and tell people that it's just an autobiography 
it's it it looks, seems really self-indulgent and and not worth reading but it defies de- definition it surpasses any of that you just please read it mm. okay my number two is we need to talk about kevin by lionel schreiber mm. dear franklin i'm unsure why one trifling incident this afternoon has moved me to write to you but since we've been separated i may most miss coming home to deliver the narrative curiosities of my day the way a cat might lay mice at your feet the small humble offerings that pr- couples proffer after foraging in separate backyards. Incredibly well-observed little moments of domesticity aside, it's just gut punches from here, I'm afraid, guys, <laughs> um, in terms of <laughs> my favourite novels. Um, one of the most utterly riveting, provocative, and insightful novels I've ever read, and it's very hard when talking about it not to focus on the devastating final 15 pages or so, mm-hmm. uh, which is just one of the greatest cruelest rug pulls ever <laughs> ever in any mm-hmm. in any work of literature but beyond that there is just a wonderfully melancholy story of fear and frustration the uh, the novel is about a woman a, writing letters to her husband describing their early life um specifically the birth of her first child kevin she talks about her anxieties and her fears that she has in she may not feel un- the unconditional love that she is expected and promised to feel upon the birth of her child because I think everybody feels a sort of existential need to procreate and just assumes that it'll fall into place once you've done so. Mm. And in the, in the novel, Eva, the character, she's getting to 35, the time when menopause may start soon and she may well, she may soon become too old to have kids. She has a kid because she f- she's worried it'll become too late soon. That's the only reason. Yeah. And what if that's not good enough? What if that's not a good enough reason to do this? And the child doesn't inspire that spark of love that feeling of bonding and what Mm. if the kid can tell that you don't that you're faking it and as a result becomes a monster there's a great depth to the dynamic between ava and kevin um Mm. it's incredibly readable initially as a series of cruel bitchy but rather piffy and clever exchanges between the two of them as they poke holes in Mm. each other's facades (laughs) but the more you read it the more brilliantly observed it is and this this idea that what if this kid becomes just a little mirror just to shout back any insecurities she has and reading it again what becomes most fascinating about it is the idea that kevin is just a very concentrated storage point of all of eva's most cynical and negative parts of herself and in hating Mm. him it's just about her own real self-loathing um contrasted with this is the utterly heartbreaking aftermath of the event where she's just absolutely hated in this town receives nothing but pity and scorn from the people around her but she's the hardest thing is just that she's completely unable to forgive herself and that this is a confession that's happening of terrible sins and it's yeah it's just really devastating certainly is my man Mm. my number one is barry's big book of balls (laughs) barry's big big book of balls by barry ball boy (laughs) my my number one is cloud atlas by david mitchell yay Thursday, 7th of November, beyond the Indian hamlet, upon a forlorn strand, I happened upon a trail of recent footprints. Through rotting kelp, sea coconuts, and bamboo, the tracks led me to their maker, a white man, his trousers and pea jacket rolled up, sporting a kempt beard and an outsized beaver, shoveling and sifting the cindery sand with a teaspoon so intently that he noticed me only after I had hailed him from ten yards away. Thus it was I made the acquaintance of Dr. Henry Goose, surgeon to the London nobility. An adventurous Russian doll of a novel where six people across six locations and six centuries are seemingly connected by a birthmark shaped like a comet. 
Each of them is put in some peril and has some degree of control removed from their lives. They fight the shackles and leave an account of their struggle in a format that the next person in the line can access. So the first person, Adam Ewing, uh, who I just read from there, writes a diary in the 18th century that Robert Frobisher can pick up in the 19th, who writes Mm. the diary and also a piece of music that Louisa Ray comes across in the 1970s, feeling like she's heard it before. Sorry sorry to interject, wasn't Robert Frobisher's um, A Series of Letters? That's it, that's it, of course, thank you. A Series of Letters to his lover, Six Smith, that's it, yeah. Six Smith, sorry. Yeah, Six Smith, thank you. No worries. Yeah, it's uh, what I loved about it was that it moved away from realism and um, it, it, David Mitchell was an adventurous writer from his very first novel. Um, mm. He's a master character writer as well and most of his novels demonstrate yeah. to some extent how easily he can shift from one person to the next. But Cloud Atlas is his most accomplished. The similarities between stories speaks of a universality of experience for the human condition throughout history. And it's told in the understanding that life very much goes on, that the world isn't fair or nice, but there is beauty in many of the places you look. So you better pay attention. As as these characters go through the same sort of stages, there are moments of incredibly painful beauty when characters feel they've taken all they can. And the more he builds on this, this this world, Sorry. The more he builds on this world, um, the greater a sense of beauty within, I think, you get. I don't often remember final lines, but this is mm. one of the most beautiful I've ever yeah. I've ever read. No. Also, the books of David Mitchell are a universe themselves. Uh, the diary of Adam Ewing is picked up in his novel, The Thousand Autumns of Jakob de Zoot. Mm. Robert Frobisher's uh, romantic interest, Eva, I think, shows up in Black Swan Green. It's very gratifying to see where he goes with it next in, you know, in every consecutive mm-hmm. novel it's just a really amazing world that he's created the tagline that was used for the for the book was souls cross ages like clouds cross skies um it's a really beautiful sentiment really mm. concisely put and that's a lot of what david mitchell does best lovely okay my number one is the road by cormac mccarthy oh. and this is my favorite first sentence of anything ever it's it's perfect just the rhythm of it the content what it's implying mm. is gorgeous when he woke in the woods in the dark and the cold of the night he'd reach out to touch the child sleeping beside him nights dark beyond darkness and the days more gray than each one that had gone before like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the world his hand rose and fell softly with each precious breath he pushed away the plastic tarpaulin and raised himself in the stinking robes and blankets and looked toward the east for any light but there was none my experience of mccarthy is interesting i picked up the road um, thinking it had an interesting premise and expecting, I think, something a bit more pulpy than it was. Mm. Um, and then motivated by this, I read every all of the other books. He's written ten books in total. Um, it's the only time I think I've written the entire. I've read the entire bibliography of an author, um, including his um, play, The Sunset Limited, and his screenplay for um, The Counselor. Mm. So I just adore the way the man writes the um, the prose, the bleakness, the um, extraordinary sort of landscapes he creates but interestingly if i were to order mccarthy's books in order of preference they would almost certainly be a reverse order chronologically every book was an improvement on the previous one almost without exception and the road is the culmination of that and also interestingly the first book he wrote after having a son he had a son very late in life Ah. and yeah there's something about it that brings a whole new element to his writing a um a, a he always wrote about very bleak worlds and mm. people doing desperate things at any cost. But now there's something very precious and sweet and believable at the heart of it that's at risk. But with with all of that vulnerability, 
that that child brings also the hope that is missing from so many of his books. It's a sad and bleak but very compelling story. It's riveting. The sort of it's a journey, I should explain. A father and a son are traveling through a dystopian landscape heading south in the hope of encountering the ocean, which they feel may yield some peace, they hope. But really it's just something to do. Um the prose is stark for going almost all punctuation, which um McCarthy does in almost all of his books, mm. but it's even more stripped out here with just single, you know, two-word sentences occupying a line. It feels very stripped away of any mm. pre- uh, pretenses. Uh, and yet is also, as you've just heard, incredibly eloquent and um, lyrical in its prose. There are two very specific moments in this book that scare the living shit out of me every time, even to think about. Um, mm. One involves a basement and the other a barbecue. And in both examples, the only thing I can bear to think about aside from the viscerally horrible thing that's happening at the heart of both of those moments, from the barbecue, I think, the father quickly leads the son, neither of whom are named, away from the situation, apologizing. Just saying, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. For what? For how the world is? For not being able to protect him from the thing he has seen? From the darkness he has Mm. experienced? It's such a tragic idea that the father is apologizing for this this fucking horrible thing that's being done, not by him. But the trust the two characters have in each other, the son helpless and sort of dependent on the father, is heartbreaking because it's such a terrifying and cruel world. And yet, together, the love that they share is this powerful thing. It's a light that they carry with them and that needs to be carried with them even as things befall them and they experience this world. It's a very dark book, but it's one... It's only in complete darkness that a small light can be fully seen, and it's 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 all about hope and not giving up and carrying that fire. Mm. And that's why I think it's one of the most optimistic books ever written, because it's one that acknowledges the darkness and how terrifying it is, and that just being all the evidence you need as to the importance of light, no matter how small. Well, those are our top ten favourite novels. Please go out and uh, have a read of those. Yeah. Some great stuff And then stuff next in week, there. come back and tell us all about them. <laughs> Please do. Come tell us. I think that pretty much um, sums up literature forever. We'll never have to come back to that. Yeah, thank fuck for that. No one ever need to write about literature again. No. Pauls have sorted it. We did it. Where can people find out about the one good thing? You can find out on Facebook, Twitter, Gmail, OGTpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can listen to us on YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean and um, if you if you bend all the way around so that your ear is cupping your own butt, you'll be able to hear the sounds of the pools <laughs> squeaking out <laughs> in perpetuity. With in perpetuity. With their parpy opinions. Yeah. Fantastic. What a good end to the literature episode. <laughs> oh, a couple of writer boys. Yeah. Hoping to make a living off of this at some point, aren't we? In our own little ways. Brilliant. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Uh, thanks very much for bearing with us through the three slightly abstract different media episodes. Uh, we may well return with episodes on things such as television, graphic novels, and uh, what was it called? Scrimshaw. <laughs> What's your favourite one? How hard is it to narrow it down? We'll find out. <laughs> anyway, um, for the next few, though, we're going to go back to uh, bad movies and finding good things about them. Yeah, It's what you don't pay for. It's what you're going to get. I'm Paul Salt. I'm Paul Goodman. And remember, the one good thing about literature is that there is a whole beautiful, extraordinary world of books that aren't Fifty Shades of Grey out there just waiting for you.